Welcome to Partnering Leadership, conversations with leading influencers in the greater Washington, D.C. region and global thought leaders, helping you align better with your purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm really excited this week to be welcoming Ron Adner. Ron is Professor of Business Administration and Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. His award-winning research introduces a new perspective on value creation and competition when industry boundaries break down. And that is exactly what's been happening. His two books, The Wide Lens, What Successful Innovators See That Others Miss, and Winning the Right Game, How to Disrupt, Defend, and Deliver in a Changing World, have been heralded as landmark contributions to strategy literature. Clay Christensen, whom I quote frequently, described Ron's work as pathbreaking, and Jim Collins called Ron one of the most important strategic thinkers of the 21st century. I have really enjoyed reading Ron's books and understand strategy differently. So when I'm working with clients, rather than having them depend on old and outdated frameworks that many organizations are still using in thinking through strategy, I rely on much of what Ron shares in his writing, including in his book, Winning the Right Game. So I really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm sure you will too. I also enjoy hearing from you. Keep your comments coming. Mahan at mahantavikoli.com. There's a microphone icon on partneringleadership.com. Really enjoy Enjoy getting those voice messages. Don't forget to follow the podcast, Tuesday Conversations with Magnificent Changemakers from the Greater Washington, D.C. DMV region, and Thursday Conversations with brilliant global thought leaders like Ron. Now, here is my conversation with Professor Ron Adner. Ron Adner, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. It's great to be here with you. Thank you. Ron, I love your book, Winning the Right Game, How to Disrupt, Defend, and Deliver in a Changing World. But before we get to that, Ron, we'd love to know whereabouts you grew up and how your upbringing impacted the kind of person you've become. I grew up in the New York area. I was always curious, allowed to be curious. I went to college for engineering, and I went into engineering because I was always interested in the question of innovation. But then... I decided to do my PhD work, not in engineering, but rather at a business school, because I became convinced that a lot of what we attribute innovation failures to are actually not so much about the technology and the the creation side so much as what it is that's been asked for. And more importantly, what happens after you deliver the goods to the go-to-market phase? So my intellectual journey has been, how do you think about innovation in a world where people know how to innovate? What do you need to worry about next? And that's where this whole approach of thinking about the overall ecosystem that surrounds the effort and recognizing that it is as critical to get right 
as the effort itself. That's where that all comes from. That's a very helpful background. You also mentioned innovation. You have a great book on innovation, the white lens that you had written previously. There are some words, including innovation, that are used in business by a lot of people. So when you talk about innovation, what do you refer to? Great question, because we have all these words that are now used so much that they barely mean anything. Innovation, disruption, <laughs> ecosystem. So yeah, very happy to at least give you the definitions I offer. Broadly, when I think about an innovation, it's an effort to put some new version of value creation into the world. It's something new that you're doing with the goal of creating some value for someone with some expectation of a return for that. So those are the three aspects that if you can't articulate you're not really saying anything when you say the word innovation, right? The value you're going to create, who you're going to create it for, and what you expect in return for your effort. The notion of an ecosystem, which is today almost as overused, for me is the question of you have an innovation, have this value proposition, what needs to be put around it in order for you to deliver that value? What's the structure of interaction of the partners that needs to come about to deliver that value proposition. And what that highlights, by the way, is that sometimes you need to affect that structure. You need to change the membership. You need to add partners. And then what you need is an ecosystem strategy. Sometimes you don't need to do that stuff. Sometimes you're just create your piece and it plugs in beautifully into the existing system. And then you don't need to worry about ecosystems. You just need to worry about execution. That really is the point of departure for my work for both of these books. It's what happens. How do you think differently in a world where what matters is your ability to execute on your piece and what changes when it turns out there are other pieces that need to be brought into the game. And that's the second world that I spend most of my time. I love that perspective on innovation, most specifically, Ron, because a lot of times innovation is seen as something that technology companies engage in. And the fact that when you think about it through the ecosystem that you talked about, it actually makes innovation more accessible to all kinds of organizations. I'd say it makes it more full because look, everyone, if you're in HR and you're trying to come up with a new uh, talent assessment protocol, that's an innovation. It's trying to create value for your company. There's an end user and there's some expectation for what your return is. It's not necessarily measured in dollars and cents, but you're doing this effort that's non-repetitive for a reason. Then the question there is, all right, if that's the innovation you're going after. What's the extent to which what you need to do is come up with this great diagnostic? And what's the extent to which if you had the diagnostic, now you need other people to adjust for it to matter? Do you need department leaders to change the conversation they're having with other people? And that puts us into this world that I explored in my first book, which you mentioned, Wide Lens, where the idea was all about how do you understand the interdependence how do you see interdependence in your value creation? And the distinction I drew there was 
Narrow lens is I need to focus on execution, which is always important. But sometimes I need a wide lens where if I'm depending on other people, the two pillars of the wide lens were the question of co-innovation. I'm going to do something new. Does anyone else need to innovate for my innovation? And that's distinct from my adoption chain, which is I need to have an innovation that creates value for this end consumer. Could be external consumer, could be internal consumer. Does anyone else need to buy in besides the end consumer for me to deliver my value proposition? Again, you can see how this applies in a product space, in a service space, from internal clients, for external. And all that was the beginning of this journey of, if I'm thinking about an initiative, what do I need to see? Where this new book came from, Winning the Right Game, was the question of, this is how people are innovating. If they're pulling together more and more pieces, and by the way, when you look around, it does seem that that's all the exciting part is being done, not alone, but through collaboration. If that's how people are innovating, how does that change the way we need to think about competition? How does that change the way we need to think about strategy with a big S? And that's what winning the right game is all about. That's why it's really relevant, Ron. I'm involved with and I've seen a lot of strategic planning processes with senior teams. In many instances, they're still relying on the old thinking that I studied when I went to business school. Porter's five forces play a big role. So you say that the nature of competition has changed and therefore strategy and strategic thinking needs to change and take into consideration these ecosystems. How has nature of competition changed in your view? And therefore, how does the nature of strategy and strategic thinking need to change? It's a great question and it's a great point. Most organizations today, for-profit, non-profit, government, what have you, strategy is very challenging. That's the polite way of saying. Usually strategy devolves into a budgeting exercise. Budgeting and benchmarking against competition. By the way, that's very hard. It's very challenging. But I would say more and more, it's feeling like it's less productive. And the reason for that, I'll suggest to you, is that, so in the old world, we used to have things that you would talk about as when you went to business school, we taught you industry analysis, we, we taught you Porter's Five Forces. That was an incredibly powerful framework to help us understand how companies within an industry would compete with one another, Ford versus G. So we think about barriers to entry and substitution. And we think about bargaining power with suppliers and buyers. That's like your quick review of core strategy 101. <laughs> but the thing that if you step back, you realize was presumed was this notion that there was this industry and we all knew what it was. So Ford and GM in the car industry, that was one kind of world. It's a challenging world. It's hard to think about differentiation, you focus, low cost, et cetera. But it was really clear what they were competing over. It was the purchase of a vehicle. And the way you make money is by selling cars, right? And if you look at that space today, if you talk about a car industry, you sound very naive. Because suddenly we have all this intelligence in the car and electrification. And when you look at a company like Tesla that's involved in car production, and at the same time, their distribution channel looks so different. They don't have dealers. They're doing repairs through over-the-air 
updates and there's a charging infrastructure that's tied into your mobility experience, that doesn't look like a regular competitor. That's not like Toyota entered the market with a more efficient supply chain and what do you do? It's more like, wait a second, what's the mobility offer and what is it they compete there? And that's the world of today. It's like my day job is I'm a professor. Classic disruption in higher education was the University of Phoenix coming about. This was a big deal 20 years ago. Wow, these guys are coming in and their physical campus is a hotel and their costs are so much lower. And are they going to be able to disrupt higher ed with not as good, but good enough offer if it's sufficiently cheap? You look at higher today and it's like, wow, Coursera, that's a different package. They've shifted from, are they going to be a a technology substitute for the classroom, but rather, oh, there's certification, they're working with universities. All the chairs are being moved around into this new value proposition. And this is where all of our old strategy tools break down because they were never built for a world where the value proposition itself was changing. They were built for a world where we saw the industry, we knew the industry, and the question was how to compete in that box that was the industry. Today, the boundaries are getting erased and redrawn, and that's why we need a new toolkit of not just frameworks, but fundamentally new concepts to accommodate these new interactions. This is a point I want to underline, Ron, which was something that was an aha for me. I've been a big advocate for Clay Christensen's work on a lot of different areas, love his thinking. This goes beyond the jobs to be done framework, which is important. Therefore, the kind of thinking you're talking about with respect to ecosystem requires to go outside of the normal questions that I know many senior teams and many executives have been asking themselves. The more insightful ones were going beyond just the function of the car in that case and asking themselves, what's the job to be done moving a person from one place to the other? That was insightful. But what you are proposing is a step beyond that. It's a look at an overall ecosystem that breaks a lot of molds of the way strategy, thinking, and planning has been done. But that's exactly right. And so you have to get jobs to be done. You have to have that customer insight. But it turns out that having that customer insight is the starting point, not the ending point of the journey. Because kind of the world we live in today, the follow-up question is, so how do we deliver that value? And I think most of the way in which we've been trained to think is like, wow, oh, there's a job. I'm going to do the job. And I'm going to deliver it's like me to my customer and I fight off my rivals. Whereas the world we're talking about, this notion of an ecosystem is the recognition that, huh, a couple of different folks are going to need to figure out how to bring different pieces together into a structure that makes sense for each other in order to build that value proposition that they can then present to the end consumer. So in, I'd say in the old world, the kind of the narrow lens industry world, which is, remains very important. The key criteria were like, do you have a good idea for your consumer and can you deliver? Whereas in this new world, you need to have a good idea for your consumer. You need to be able to deliver 
But what you need to recognize is that often you're delivering just a part. And now your challenge as a strategist, as an investor, and by the way, as an employee participating in this, and you're putting time and career at stake is, do I have a plan for bringing the other partners into this game in the way that I want it to be played? So ecosystem strategy really becomes alignment strategy beyond just our old version of competition. You mentioned the fact that a lot of our thinking in strategy has come from the competition and the military thinking of battles and win-lose rather than coalitions and cooperation that it takes, which is why it's winning the right game. I also really enjoyed reading your Kodak example because it's one of the examples that I hear repeatedly referenced. However, most people use it incorrectly, assuming that everyone at Kodak was asleep at the switch and they weren't. So what happened to Kodak and how would have recognition of operating in an ecosystem potentially impacted them? All right. There's like a warning to the list who I'm sure everyone who's listening to this podcast has heard the Kodak story 50 times. So the <laughs> Just before you tune out, the point of this is (laughs) that it turns out that the story that has been embraced since 2012, when they went bankrupt, about why they failed, which is, oh, this is a company that they invented digital technology, and then they were so rooted in their old chemical ways that they couldn't overcome internal inertia, and they couldn't master this new technology, and because of that, they died. They couldn't adapt to the landscape, which is a story everybody's been told. By the way, the very strong implication of, oh, don't let that be you, so take more risk and don't be like Kodak. That story turns out to be 100%, literally (laughs) 100%. Anyone listening, the first chapter of both books, in fact, is available on my website. So you can read that Kodak story at ronadner.com. And the reason to read it is, on page one, I'll give you the answer, which is, so Kodak turns out, totally transformed itself into a digital printing company. All the stuff people said would be impossible for them to do, that they struggled both through the 90s, that part is true. Through the 2000s, they become a spectacular digital printing company. They become the number one seller of digital cameras in the country. They become the number four printer company. They have 1,100 digital imaging patents. Totally amazing. And then they still die. So that part is true. But look, the reason that Kodak collapses is because they made this bet on becoming a digital printing company. And then what happened was that digital viewing, the phone in your pocket becomes a substitute for the picture in your wallet. And it's digital viewing that collapses the proposition of digital printing, which by the way, Kodak went bankrupt, but HP and Lexmark were damaged by the same thing. The reason to focus on this is in some ways, what's so poignant here is there's a misunderstanding of the story. And now, as soon as I say it, the iPhone that killed Kodak, it was like, yeah, totally get it. That's fine. The point is to ask, well, why were we so sure that it was inertia that killed Kodak for 10 years? Really smart people looking at this story, really trying to help organizations, everybody saying, don't be like Kodak because organizational inertia is what kills you. For me, the power of really understanding this new kind of disruption is that it raises, first of all, it should make you very scared. 
because suddenly this thing you were sure about for 10 years turns out to be 100% wrong. And I have this, the opening quote to chapter one is this quote from Mark Twain, which is what gets us into trouble. It's not what we don't know. It's what we know for sure that just ain't so. So what is it that made us so confident in the misdiagnosis of the codex? And what is it that we need to understand in order to, not to fall into that trap? And in some ways, what Kodak captures is, here is the risk of using the old tools and winning, but winning the wrong. They were focused on the winning in the digital printing game, and they succeeded in winning there. They succeeded in the transformation, but it was the wrong transformation. They won the wrong game, and that feels a lot like losing. And this is why we need this new perspective. That's the risk that we're facing with the old tools. In the 2000s, they transitioned effectively to that digital model. I actually had a conversation with Steve Sasson, who is the inventor of digital photography back in 1975. He had some initial trouble at the beginning and through the 90s also, as you mentioned. However, by early 2000s, the executives got it and understood at least the fact that they needed to make a transition to digital. But what you are saying is that they had a great strategy in the wrong game and winning the wrong game doesn't do you any good. Yeah. And so I got to meet Steve. And I did some extensive interviews, Steve Sasson and I, about this case. And I think what was really interesting here, and again, if you're a listener and you're in an organization, but the inoculation here is people within Kodak had some suspicion that this was going on. But what was missing was a way of expressing it coherently and being able to really debate strategy at a strategic level rather than focusing on what's the relative market share and what's going up and down. And I think both of these books, both Wide Lens and Right Game, become vitally important to me that when people read them, the way to read them is not just, ah, here's a new set of frameworks and concepts that'll let me get to a better answer. It's these concepts and frameworks are also a language that will help you get other people, the people you're depending on, onto the same page. If you're the only person in the room with the right answer, you're basically useless. Your job is to get everybody to the right answer so they can work coherently and here again, this is why we need a language that is appropriate for the task at hand. That is a critical point that you make, Ron. Communicate your plan throughout the organization to keep others committed. You quote Malcolm Gladwell, you cannot make sense of things you can't describe. And one of the challenges I see in organizations is vast majority of people in the organization can't describe that strategy. A group of smart senior executives sit in a room and come up with a strategy and in some instances might consider ecosystems. Many more of them need to do that, but that is not something that people in the organization understand and are able to embrace, own, and communicate. That's exactly right. The subtlety there is that, yeah, that Malcolm Gladwell quote, is one of, so every chapter I start with a quote, as you know. In chapter seven, which is about strategic clarity as collective, I start with this Gladwell quote, which is you can't make sense of the things you can't describe. But the corollary 
And the Adner corollary to that is what that means is that your people can't understand your strategy if they can't describe it. And that really is the call for, it's not enough for leaders today to think they have the right answer. It's the things that we're asking people inside the organization to do. The interactions they need to manage are more complicated. So it's just as important to get them trained up and skilled up in the strategic thinking as it is, quite frankly, to have the top. Because the top without action from the rest of the organization is really not doing us very much good. In thinking through this, Ron, some aspects of it, I would categorize as mindsets of reflecting on ecosystems, the ownership and the understanding that needs to happen in the entire organization, making sure to focus more on collaboration and partnerships rather than competition. How can leaders then approach their strategy and strategic planning using some of this thinking to build off of the ecosystem thinking that you talk about? Yeah, that's a really good question, right? because I want to make sure people don't think that this is all in the realm of the abstract. In both of these books, every chapter has a very clear framework for implementation. And if I think about winning the right game, if you're thinking about strategy, the first thing you need to understand is this idea of your value architecture. Like what are the elements that you're trying to bring together? And only then do you think about how do I bring partners to bring them together? The interesting twist in that value architecture story, which you read in chapter one, which is online, is that it leads us to see that partners can pursue different trajectories. And there's a way of recognizing which partners might over time become foes and guarding against that. So chapter three, which is about ecosystem offense, ecosystem construction. Once you have that vision, how do you think about the stepwise progression that you want to pursue in building an ecosystem? The trap that many companies, small and very large, fall into is the sense that once I have my idea, I should be able to launch an ecosystem around it all at once. That is a manifestation of something that I call the ecosystem delusion. <laughs> So the difference between an ecosystem and an ecosystem is that an ecosystem is something you define around a value proposition and you think about the partners you want to bring together. An ecosystem is what happens when you define all those activities with yourself always at the center. And to your question about leadership, a successful leader in today's environment has to be able to avoid this very natural ecosystem trap. And needs to realize there's a different trade-off in leadership between execution and alignment that if you don't know how to manage that, the likelihood that you're going to bring one of these systems together is diminishingly small. As you said, I was smiling, Ron. It's an ecosystem, not an ego system. And in many of these conversations, it's a little bit like putting the earth at the center of the universe and everything revolving around the earth. In thinking about the ecosystem, your organization doesn't necessarily end up in that center. So what does it take for leaders to effectively be able to operate in more of an ecosystem environment? That's a great question. In some ways, what's great about it is it, it highlights the difference from 
what it was like to work in a world of industries, which, by the way, was a really hard world to work in. We don't want to minimize that. And by the way, big chunks of the economy today still function like that. And in some ways, like the title of this book is signaling how different the world is today. Because again, if you can't define an industry, because everyone is beginning to come into this space with different motivations, with different goals, suddenly you need to figure out this idea of winning the right game, which is signaling both that there are multiple games being played on the board. And two, as we said, the product, if you win the wrong one, that can feel a lot like what do you need a leader in this kind of environment to do is they need to have this different strategic outlook. But two, and just, just as you said so critically, once you realize that winning here requires building a coalition, then the usual traits of execution, the idea of the best leaders would put their companies ahead of themselves, always deliver results. That's great in an industry, but if you're trying to build a coalition and all your partners know that you put your company first all the time, it's a lot harder to get them to choose to follow your direction. So in chapter six, actually, I draw this contrast between an execution mindset for leaders and an alignment mindset for leaders. And the key is, it's not that one of these leaders is better than the other, it's that different leadership mindsets are appropriate to different contexts. If you're in an industry context, then execution mindset. But if you're trying to align partners into an ecosystem, then you need to have an alignment mindset. And the reason that matters is because what you'd be willing to do and what you'd be willing to sacrifice. In an alignment mindset, you have to necessarily be willing to sacrifice short-term gains in order to bring together the coalition. And that's a different emotional space to be in. It's a question of how easy it is for a single individual to move from one mindset to the other. But definitely, as you're thinking about assigning leaders, as you're thinking about what you want to volunteer to lead, you want to understand that match. Making that transition to an alignment mindset, Ron, is a difficult transition for most organizations and most leaders. What are approaches to be able to effectively focus on alignment in addition to the mindset? So this is where, where the other tools, both winning the right game and wide lens come into play, which is you need to start with your articulated value proposition. Then you need to have clarity on what's the, the architecture that you're trying to pursue. And again, the frameworks from the books. Then you need to think about what's the blueprint that I'm building towards? Who are the partners? What's co-innovation? What's adoption chain? And how is it that these things will come together? And by the way, the twist here is, I talk about this in Winning the right game under the notion of the hierarchy of winners. We've all been trained to want to be the leader because you look at individuals are leaders, you look at companies that are leaders, they, wow, that looks like <laughs> certainly in an industry world, being the leader and being the winner, those are almost synonyms. Nobody wants to be the follower. But in an ecosystem, if you think about it, if all you have is leaders and no followers, you just have a bunch of suits walking around. No one's accomplishing it. So an ecosystem mindset is also one that recognizes that, well, there's going to be somebody pulling the system together, and then they got other people who are going to be coming together to support that system. And it opens up a whole new conversation about what does smart followership look like in an ecosystem? So that the hierarchy of winners is, all right, maybe the number one spot is you're the leader of a successful ecosystem. That's great. The number two spot is 
you are a smart participant, a smart follower in a successful ecosystem. Because if it's a successful ecosystem, everyone is succeeding. The followers may not make quite as much, but they also risk a lot less, so the returns can be much. That's the second. Third place goes to followers in unsuccessful ecosystems. All right, you're a follower, you're not making money, you're going to lose something, but your investment wasn't that big. You didn't commit the whole organization. Last place in an ecosystem is the people who try to lead an ecosystem, but then were unsuccessful because all they have is their investment and their mess to clean up without anything to show for. The distinction here is that in an industry leadership, it's like an outcome. Uh, you're leading in market share, you're leading in sales. In an ecosystem, leadership is a role. The job of the leader is to give everybody else the reason to follow instead of it's not an outcome. The outcome is collected within the successful ecosystem. And here again, this is a different kind of conversation that, look, I think experienced people have that as an intuition. Their effectiveness can be multiplied if we can give them a, a clear, crisp language in which to bring that intuition to life. It's really important for all of us to reflect on this, Ron, because I believe that most of the strategic planning that I have been exposed to and I see, there are some of the same questions, same frameworks from competitor analysis to everything else that are still the go-to and the executive feel most comfortable because most of the executives, whether in business school or elsewhere, have been exposed to it. So they know where are we as compared to competitors? What are they doing that we need to learn from? How can we get ahead of them? So a lot of the questions that are being asked in the strategic planning conversations and the thinking is aligned with the wrong game and winning that wrong game. Yeah, it's interesting to me. So when Wide Lens came out, 2012, basically it was saying when you're thinking about innovation, you need to realize you're missing this really important thing. Part of the job of the book was to convince people to think about their ecosystem. Winning the Right Game came out just a couple of months ago, and I've been amazed at how much it's resonating. That is, everybody knows that their understanding of competition, they don't need to be convinced that they need to rethink competition. They all feel it. what's been missing is what's the toolkit we can use. So I have to say, I've been actually incredibly pleased with the way in which these ideas have been picked up. And because why do I write the, I write these books because the luxury of being an academic with time for research is to be able to come up with ideas that are hopefully useful to the world. And every once in a while you get something, then the reason to write the book is to put it out so the, the key to your question is we need, so people are hungry for this. So the book is there. And really what I want, it's not enough for a single leader to have this new approach to strategy. It's how do you get your team to communicate this? You can get the book from the library. You can buy a book and pass it around. I don't make my money through book sales. It really is in order to be effective, to be efficient with your energy and resources in this world, the more of this you can see in advance, the more effective you can be. And that's really the hope behind this book. It's outstandingly well done. In addition to organizational leaders, Ron, I interact with, and I know uh, we have listeners who are mayors, county executives, heads of nonprofits that are trying to bring together initiatives across the region. This kind of thinking that 
you shared, you also played a role in Operation Warp Speed. Do you mind talking a little bit about that and how ecosystem thinking impacted the development and eventual rollout of the COVID vaccines? Yeah, I'll say two different things. The first is the broader point is that these kinds of dynamics apply so far beyond the private sector. This need to bring coalitions together in support of uh, a value proposition, governments, nonprofits have been focused on this far longer than the for-profit sector has been, quite frankly. I would suggest their strategy tools have not been quite as effective either, which is why actually the afterword of the book is confronting ecosystem disruption beyond the private sector. It's all about how so many things that used to fit within, so in the government sector, we don't have industries. We do still have departmental boxes. If you think about whether it's environment used to be an issue for the EPA. It used to be smoke coming out of a, of a smokestack and it was too black. That was a problem. Today, global warming, you know what? Sea levels are rising. Real estate is getting drenched. There are fires in California. It's no longer fitting within that one silo. The opioid crisis was a similar kind of thing. When I first started working with HHS, the, the example I had there was the opioid crisis was this interesting disruption that it was a combination of a healthcare issue and a criminal justice issue. Right? Really interesting. It was the first time we had major drug addiction coming from a prescription drug and the criminal justice system didn't quite know how to interact with it. Solving it will obviously need that kind of... And then COVID is like the biggest example. So again, it's a virus. So it's supposed to stay in a healthcare bucket within two months. It's global trade. It's national international defense. It goes across the whole thing. And actually... I'd say Operation Warp Speed, the vaccine initiative, is a beautiful demonstration of how to look at a situation. And as an aside, there's always a question when people read examples of success in ecosystem thinking. There's always this question of, well, but did it happen accidentally or did people really think this whole thing? And I'd say for the last 25 years, there's basically been this movement that says the world is so complicated. Don't so much worry about having a strategy as much as being good at, at adapting. Lean startup, A-B testing, fail fast, all that stuff is in some ways an application of strategy. So I'm totally on the other side. I say, well, the world is so complex, you'd better just stop what you're doing and spend some time thinking of it. The likelihood that you're just going to flip coins to the top of the mountain very low. And so what makes Operation Warp Speed particularly interesting, as you said, I've had some interactions with the folks responsible and you know it's amazing what they were able to accomplish, but Operation Warp Speed really totally reconfigured the pharmaceutical ecosystem in terms of not just the speeding of testing that allowed for faster approval of these vaccines. That was people working nights and weekends. For me, the real miracle was that once we had approved drugs, within a matter of weeks, we had sufficient quantities to inoculate a large percentage of the population. The magic was we had drugs and they became available, as opposed to the usual process, which you have a drug approved, then five years later, you can inoculate the population. And in order to make that happen, the government played this incredible role 
up orchestrating really one of the best demonstrations of public-private partnership, leveraging the private sector and the powers of the public sector. The public sector came in terms of managing procurement, managing logistics. That's what was so important that there was this collaboration between Health and Human Services and Department of Defense. They saw from day zero, we're going to need hundreds of millions of vaccines to go into arms and reconfigured things as basic as we didn't have enough glass vials for hundreds of millions of doses. So when they contracted with the pharmaceutical manufacturers, when they pre-purchased in order to de-risk these R&D commitments, they saw through the potential problem of Merck is going to have 100 million vials, but it's Moderna that's going to get the vaccine first. You don't want a world where Merck is sitting on 100 million empty vials and Moderna has 15 vats full of miracle vaccine that can't go anywhere. So the way in which they repositioned, redrew the reallocated responsibility is what allowed this miracle production to happen. And it's a perfect demonstration of something that could only be thought of, only could be executed if it had all been thought through in advance. And as you say, one of the great points of pride is, yeah, that kind of the why that this ecosystem thinking from wide lens and the right game played a role in the way in which they thought of it. I was not involved in the initiative itself. Tremendous teams, tremendous efforts, you know, Secretary Hazar on down. But it's a demonstration of just the power of the public sector when it works well. It's a demonstration of public-private partnerships. And as you say, very much a demonstration of how important it is to understand this outside of the private sector. And that's why it's important, whether it is with the private sector, the nature of competition having changed and the need to think through ecosystems or in the uh, public sector or in our communities, the nature of change and the nature of the challenges we are facing require more thinking aligned with the ecosystem rather than traditional ways of thinking, which therefore require new systems, tools, and approaches, even in the conversations of strategy. You mentioned earlier that you can't abdicate strategy. Some have abdicated it because they haven't had the tools of thinking that you provide. And many others are still using the old tools to come up with the old rules and old strategies to win the wrong game. I think you provide a lot of those frameworks, Ron, in your books that leaders can read, think about, reflect. And as you mentioned, in conversations with their team members in everyone in the organization, have a new language as they work together in taking advantage of the opportunities in the ecosystem through collaboration and having more significant impact on the community. Now, before finding out how the audience can connect with you, Ron, would love to know, are there any other books, whether relating to strategy, ecosystems, or leadership that you think can support your thinking, both in the wide lens and in winning the right game? It's interesting. There are a lot of business books that look at this space. Different people take different cuts at this question of ecosystems and platforms. I think you can dig into the history of complex projects and learn a lot about how this works. It's important to realize, even though we're using this word ecosystem so frequently today, ecosystems are not different. Ecosystems, when the car industry was founded, 
120 years ago, it was an ecosystem challenge. Somebody had to figure out if I'm going to make this horseless wagon with an engine, who's going to provide the fuel? Who's going to pave the roads? It was an ecosystem story back then. So it's interesting for me to read histories from that era. What's true, though, is things moved a lot slower because a given firm was involved in just one ecosystem at a time. And it could have been a 20-year journey. I think what does make today so much more challenging is a given firm, given organization, will find itself both pursuing multiple ecosystems simultaneously, and at the same time, what we see more and more is competition coming from other markets that aren't mine simultaneously. And that's what leads to the strategic chaos that we're feeling. Ron, how would you recommend for the audience to find out more about you? You mentioned the first chapters of both books are on your site and connect with you, find out more about your resources. Ronadner.com has a host of different resources that I've pulled together for people trying to think through this. There's the chapters of their summaries of the frameworks. There are podcasts and also connect with me, the best place to go. The reason both publishers agreed to give me permission to share the entire first chapter of both books, which is unusual for a business. Most business books, it's like one chapter drawn into a book. Here, the first chapters are enough to set up the problem. I have enough confidence that the value of the rest of the book will make you want to read it. But the reason for doing this is so that you could share this with the people you need to have these discussions with. For me, the real motivation of all the time and effort that goes into creating these books is so that people can use them to be more effective. The more barriers I can reduce to that, the better. So if you go to ronander.com, that's my best and most generous shot. At that is a great place to start. However, I'm sure the audience will want to buy and read the books. Buy the book. Tell everybody to buy the book. Review the book. There are books, Ron, that you read and I read lots of books. After you read the book, you get the one point, you got it and move on for the book never to be revisited. Yours is one that people want to read and refer to both in conversations and in application of the frameworks, whether it's the wide lens or winning the right game, how to disrupt, defend and deliver in a, a changing world. I want to end with a quote of yours. You say, the greatest danger lies in doing everything to win, only to discover you have won the wrong game. Thank you, Ron Adner, for giving all of us a chance and the frameworks to play in and win the right game. Thank you for joining me in this conversation. Thank you so much. You're so generous with your praise, and it's an absolute delight to be with you. You've been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.